The world as we know it continues to evolve and change into something that we can only hope to understand. This is why the registry continues to provide industry insights through personal interviews with the leaders who are shaping real estate on a daily basis. By subscribing to our podcast, you are helping us in our work, and we will continue to deliver programming such as the one you're about to hear. Please click the subscribe button and let your friends and colleagues know about us. It will help you and the industry stay ahead of the game. Building a co-living enterprise was a challenge even before the COVID pandemic, but Star City founder and CEO John Deshotsky took the approach of building communities from his early days and family focus on communal living. Today, Star City is growing. It just acquired a competing operator, Ollie, which gives it instant exposure on the East Coast, and the company is poised for further growth as it moves forward with plans to get to 3,000 units and more over the next few years. We sit down with John to talk about how transformative co-living has been in major urban areas of the country and the world, and where this industry will be heading in the future. Welcome to the pod, John. John, good afternoon. How are you? Hey, Vlad. Good to talk with you. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Uh, where do we find you on this uh, lovely Friday afternoon after 3 p.m., which, you know, back in the day was sacrilege. You never set meetings up at this time of the week, but, you know, here we are. <laughs> totally. I hear you. It would have been at the maybe over happy hour or something. Yeah. We are, uh, we're here in San Francisco, actually living in our house here. We have a little bit of, uh, co-housing here going on. I live here with my wife, my two kids, you know, my my wife's sister, her family also lives with us. So we've got quite a bit of people here under one roof. So I move from room to room, uh, depending on who's got what meetings booked yeah, um, <laughs> and, where I, and where I can get space. As yeah. you know, it's crazy times uh, it, during COVID. Um, so, but, uh, you know, sitting here in our, in our home office. Yeah. So very, very fluid sounds like, right. As the, uh, as somebody exits a space, you kind of fill in the void, right. Wherever you can. Yeah. We, we thought about ma- making a conference room booking system, um, for our house <laughs> <laughs> because we also have, you know, there's three children, um, under the age of four who all need their naps. So, right, uh, right. you know, we've got to divvy it up, but it's, it's, uh, I guess I would say, Enjoyable chaos. Yeah, I know. Interesting, interesting. Well, great. Well, John, you and I met, I know, very, very long time ago in a galaxy far, far away um, when you were still doing commercial brokerage. And um, since that time, obviously, you've uh, gone on to do some other things. So give us a little bit of a, you know, what you do, your kind of, how, how did you get at how did you get to Star City? How how did that happen, right? And just sort of the evolution of sort of your your um, experience, if if you will, throughout the industry. Sure thing. So, well, I'll start at today and then kind of work my way back. Star City is a global housing brand. We are pioneers in the asset class known as co living, and it's a high density form of multifamily. It's a rental product that reduces the cost of living for urbanites and combats social isolation with an experience layer that connects renters through social technology and events and all sorts of stuff like that, virtual events right now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, we just announced the acquisition of Ollie, uh, a, a, a peer of ours that's based on the East Coast, which we're really excited about. Okay. Um, and that will get our unit count to 1,500. Um, you know, we got about 3,000 in development and another 10,000 or so 
that we're in some stage of negotiation on. So wow. how did okay. we get how did how did we get here is the big question. Yeah. Right? I like to go pretty far back because the story is really important. My folks eloped to the West Coast in the 1960s. And as you can remember, uh, or at least from school or um, you know, whoever, you know, from listeners, you know, understand of the 60s in San Francisco during that time, it yeah. was a pretty cool moment, right? Counterculture, you know, free love all that sort of stuff. And they actually landed in North Beach and got the chance to live on a, a bunch of communes and really enjoyed that experience. And as my dad uh, began teaching at the university down in Palo Alto, Stanford, they wanted to make ends meet with um, sort of obviously bringing some of that into the home life. Yeah, and so yeah. as my sister, brother, and I grew up, we had Stanford students at any given time, 10 people under one roof um, living with us. And it solved a really crucial you know, set of problems. Number one was cheaper cost of living for the students. Number two was free childcare for my parents. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then my brother and sister and I had like Ade Boyga Mabagunji from Nigeria, who's the head of engineering at Stanford, help us win every science fair project. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so, you know, that was obviously a very impactful uh, experience for me as a kid. And also a really helpful way to make make the world work for our family. Like any kid does, though, I rebelled from my parents' hippie upbringing. And actually, they call it beatniks, right? So that's important classification. Right. right. And wanted to become a capitalist, right? So I went to uh, University of California, Davis, did managerial economics, did a handful of internships, everything from investment banking to Starbucks barista to you, you name it, to try to pay off my, um, you know, uh, obviously student, student loans or, and things like that. And uh, landed at an internship at Cushman and Wakefield. I had an interview with Joe Cook, who some of the listeners might remember, just uh, an awesome guy, um, who you know said, "Hey, come on board and work at our research and analysis department." Yeah. And I got this awesome. I, I got a, you know got to work at one Maritime Plaza. I got to wear a suit every day, and I met all these um, brokers in the industry from Cushman, from JLL, you know, CB, and I was like blown away. Right. And I was like, I want to do whatever it takes to, to get a role here. So in 2006, um, was offered a full time position and ended up being mentored by the one and only J.D. Lumpkin. OK. And for, for, for those listeners who know J.D., he is, uh, you know, wonderful you know, manager. He's a wonderful broker. He's, you know, uh, has great clients and really just took me under his wing. Now, yeah, and he's now the managing director of the San Francisco office, correct? That's yeah, that's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Um, and you know, the timing was perfect because I got hired, and then the 2008 recession happened. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but there was also this whole thing happening in the Bay Area, and especially in San Francisco during this time, which was that you know startups had obviously had a really fall, falling out during the dot com times, um, and then. The resurgence, and they were all sort of starting to look at San Francisco as their main HQ. Yeah, and a lot of the group, the guys and gals I grew up with in Palo Alto were the founders of these startups and little-known company incubator Y Combinator had like moved out to the San Francisco from Boston and yeah. was funding a bunch of startups. And my friends had been accepted, and so they, you know, they would call me up and say like, "Hey, John, we just raised a small seed round. Can you help me find and build an office?" And you know, from 2010 and on, I really got a chance to help some of the you know, like some of the really great high high growth startups. And that was 
a wonderful experience for about you know the next um, five to six years. Yeah, and 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 we should we should stick with that theme just for 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 one sure. second. And I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this podcast already know know this. But 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 the last cycle, you know, the last decade, if you will, was really transformative. I think for commercial real estate, especially in the Bay Area, and it sort of drove kind of a lot of the trends that you're now seeing across the world, right? Just in terms of how space is utilized, what space looks like, right? What are the functions and activities? You know how you're building culture, how the culture and this and then the physical space kind of are, are at this intersection together, right? I mean, this, this was all really coming mainly out of out of sort of Northern California, right? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, I think I think the thing that was really impactful at the time was how do small teams grow and expand quickly and deliver products on the web that can grow from a handful of small users that really love it to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions and beyond. And the collaborative nature of those companies with open floor plans and converting the brick and timber buildings of Soma into, you know, uh, almost 24 seven workspaces, right? Because when you're working on a product that you really want to ship and get out and it's growing so quickly, you really have to be enjoying where you work and having all the amenities that build the culture of the company that you, that you call your sort of work home for so long, you know, that was one of the most fun things I did in my, in my life, to be totally honest, was, you know, working with companies like Scribd and Optimizely and Weebly and um, Cruise Automation and and really each one of them imparting their culture on the, on the built form. I think the other thing that was really special was, the developers and owners that we got a chance to work with who, you know, I think broadly speaking, took a chance on a lot of these early stage companies, you know, the financials were, the financials were always like, Hey, we raised a bunch of cash. We don't make a lot of money. We don't know how we're going to make money. right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Will you take a, will you take a bet on us? And I think that that was, that's a testament to, I think the California like innovative culture, not only from the companies, but in the real estate world, I think a lot of the owners and operators out here, really ushered in a, a new wave of creating the the floor plans that are now I guess commonplace globally. And so yeah, it was special to be a part of that to be to be totally honest. And you know, at a certain point, so you know, one part of the story I left out was my mom, you know, she was a original social justice warrior. She's taught in the civil rights movement. She went to Mississippi during the Freedom Summer. Okay. You know, she was always a very huge political advocate for those that were less fortunate. And I, in, you know, so she always was proud of the fact that I'd become this capitalist, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, b- business person. But at, at the end of the day, in the back of my mind, there was always this sense that like, hey, there's got to be something that sort of gives back. And I had spent time working for Habitat for Humanity. We did a great fundraiser that some of the listeners may remember the Bullathon at Cushman Wakefield, yep, which was always yep. wide, widely yep. attended. And yep. there's all sorts of stories that came out of that, some good, some bad. <laughs> but in the end, um, there was a there was a um, part of me that really wanted to start a company, having met all these entrepreneurs and do something that really made an impact. And so as I pushed reset in 2015 and essentially resigned from my role as a, uh, as a broker and you started to explore this idea of co-housing and what it meant for my family and how we could professionalize it in the modern world. 
at this time there was a huge asymmetry in the housing market. Yes. You had yeah. you had on one end there's Section 8 and Litech and low income housing. That was like broadly speaking a mature market. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you had luxury condos that started at a million bucks a pop. And yeah. so we have this we had this real really large asymmetry where your working class backbone economy folks were stuck with some really bad options, either commuting outside of the city, fitting four people to a two bedroom, or paying an ungodly amount of their income towards rent. Yeah. And so I put up a Craigslist ad. I asked people who were making forty to ninety k a year, who are twenty five to seventy years old, um, come and talk to me. I want to ask you some questions. And over a period of a couple months, I talked to seven hundred and fifty people. Wow! And they were all, you know, if you can provide me a cost effective, really flexible housing solution, you know, I would be open to a communal housing uh, setup. And that was really the original seed that allowed us to design the first uh, Star City location. Yeah. And and this was also a time when some some developers were building what is termed, I guess, you know, you know, micro unit, right? So there was this thinking mm-hmm. that maybe, okay, it's so expensive. So we'll, we'll just make it really small. So on a per square foot basis, right? You know, some of that disparity can be, can be, can be um, erased. But that quality of life really didn't match up there, is right? Is kind of my understanding, right? What 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 you began to offer was sort of a communal space, but also just a nicer kind of bigger bigger area, even though you're still sharing it with with others versus living in like a little shoebox, essentially. Yeah, you, you nailed it, and I think that we felt, you know, no no disrespect to the micro unit builders out there, because I think that definitely serves a function. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. We, we we feel like it didn't take it far enough. Because you, you look at the modern high-rise apartment, let's say they were all micro, micro studios, you still have 40 kitchens, 40 living rooms, and all this hallway space that goes virtually unused yeah. throughout the day and throughout the evening. And yes, you might cook, cook dinner, but you're really only using that for, let's say, 30 to 45 minutes of your day. But you're paying 1000 to $1,500 just for that, that space. And it, 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 we felt like it was not a good allocation of how space could be properly optimized, you know, and, and, and so we took it a step further. And what we designed was a layout that was, you know, really bespoke to this use case where each individual got a private bedroom and bathroom. We centralized the kitchen between five to 10 people, including a living room as well. Very high quality kitchen, chef style, with multiple burners, multiple stove, uh, multiple uh, refrigerators, dry storage, and cold storage, as I mentioned, and everything was fully furnished. What that did was it reduced the price point for the individual to a level that was about thirty to forty percent cheaper than a studio apartment, and yeah. that's what really got product market fit. And so our first location had six only six units and about a thousand people applied to move in because they were like wow this seems like it's almost too good to be true and that's really what we were trying to get to is how can we create a housing product now some folks might be like well how is that not the same as an sro right that's a question that we get a lot and you know the sros were a what I call a failed experiment, and 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 just and just for audience, uh, yes, John, if, if if you don't mind saying what what an SRO is, sure. Single room occupancies 
uh, buildings were created in the sort of like post World War II manufacturing era and yeah. most major uh, industrial hubs around the United States and, and internationally. And they were built in a time where housing accommodations and you know fair housing rules didn't you know really exist yeah. and housing quality wasn't a, a high level concern at the federal or state level. And what they did was they created what I call 95% of the floor plate as soul crushing individual rooms that were as tight as possible. Okay. 5% of the floor plate was circulation and hallway space. And so what you had is really these shoe boxes and no area for people to congregate yeah. and gather. Yeah. And, and as many people know, in modern cities, those are the last bastion of market rate affordable housing that exists for folks that are one step away from potentially being homeless in some cases. And so we wanted to deliver a, a solution that was class A in nature, that looked and felt a lot like the major REITs type of housing, something that had really great amenities, that had floor to ceiling glass, you know, all those, you know, felt like you were walking into a highly designed boutique hotel and was delivered at a price point that was affordable for folks in that, you know, as we mentioned, 70 to, uh, or, or I would say 60 to a hundred percent of area median income level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was really the, the germination of, of, of the idea. I started the company with three close friends who had actually invested in their last startup with uh, Mo, Jesse and Josh. And, you know, they had, I had done a handful of seed stage investments uh, throughout my brokerage career. And they were so transparent and so honest through that whole process to the point where they took me to a coffee shop at the end of that company's life or, or history. And they were like, Hey, John, um, we're shutting the company down and we lost your money. And I was like, well, I'm, that's okay. Best of luck. I'm starting this new thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Since I you have nothing else that, to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I walked out of that coffee shop and I was like, wait a second. I really like working with these guys and they're very smart and they, you know, they, they come from finance and law yeah. and, and, and software engineering. And so who better to start the company with? And they said, we never want to work on a startup ever again. And then I pitched them on the idea and they were like, Oh, um, actually that's, that's actually something that we feel is really important. So we yeah. definitely want to, we definitely want to work on it. Great. So this is how Star City starts, essentially, right? And then where do you guys go first? Tell us sort of what are some of the big milestones in your evolution? Yeah. So the, the first five years of the company will be coming up on, on the first five years in May of next year. It, in startup years, that's like 50 years. So it's, I feel like I've gotten <laughs> yeah. a lot of gray hairs. Um, but there's been a few key milestones for us. You, you know, when you're building a new product, Really, what you're trying to get first is product market fit. And when I first started the company, I spoke with all of my 40 you know, favorite lenders, uh, investors, and you know, capital partners. And, and, and I would say all 40 of them laughed me out of their offices. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> you know, we, we really had to think critically about, okay, how are we going to scale this business? So uh, we we pitched venture capital, and that was actually the right next step because it truly was a new product, right? Co living did not exist at scale at this time, right? And and so that was really the good the early seed capital, and and as a nice full circle for for me personally, we were accepted into Y Combinator 
in 2016 in the summer. And so that was really the early uh, seed capital that got us to the point to the next phase. So product market fit was, yeah, there was a lot of people who really wanted from a demand perspective, flexible, low cost housing that was communal in nature in the heart of cities. So we felt check. That was the first big milestone. The second thing was, you know, look, WeWork had gone through its you know enormous series of growth during the 2010s, and we we admired the product for sure. I was always a little bit nervous about the business model, right? Having come from the 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 sort of leasing world, you know, I always felt like okay. Um, there's the rubber will meet the road at some point right. where their valuation may be a little bit out uh, pacing um, what the public markets is willing to pay for that business. Yeah, And in, in no way disrespect to what they built because they built a phenomenal company, a phenomenal product. And obviously there were some things that, that went awry there, but we, we knew very early on that we wanted to be a developer owner and operator of the real estate assets. So the second big milestone that we really needed to achieve was to syndicate out and develop our first owned asset. And so that was 2017. We built our first, you know, sort of development site and then entitled our first location in the heart of Union Square, yeah. a, a, for, a former Turkish bathhouse. We got it converted to 55 units of housing. And I'll never forget the experience of going in front of the planning commission you know, getting that approval, you know, we celebrated late into the night during, during that yeah. first approval. And we felt like we really earned our stripes as a, as a developer at that time, especially entitling a project in what is widely regarded as one of the hardest places in the country to get, you know, project approvals. You know, that was really the, the second major milestone. The third major milestone for us was really opening up in new markets, right? So we, we expanded into Los Angeles and, you know, you may think that, okay, applying the same equation around affordability and and experience should work there. But, you know, folks who live in LA have a different priority list when it comes to housing. And so yeah. what we found was that lifestyle was a lot more important. Where you live, right? Being on the west side, um, close to the beach and near where all the technology jobs were and things like that. So that was a second consideration and another big milestone. A lot of lessons learned there. And, and and it's and it's and it's also interesting that that you talk about that because when you when you look at your typical you know developers I mean most of them are within you know a hundred mile kind of you know radius of their home office essentially right um, uh, so so it's interesting that, that your your thinking at that point was let's go to other markets right versus maybe let's go to Oakland let's go to San Jose let's go to you know Redwood City San Mateo places like that right. Yeah, it's it's a really good question and and one that we just think about from purely an impact perspective, right? So our mission is to make great cities accessible to everyone. Yeah. And when we say everyone, we really mean that. Um and so, and and when we say great cities, we really we really mean that. And so we had to be able to be willing to test that this works in other markets. And as as you know, there are cities all across the country even in COVID times where the cost of living is still out of reach for the vast majority sure. of the population. Even if rents have fallen by 10, 20, 30% in major markets, a one bedroom at $2,800 a month is not affordable for somebody on minimum wage. It's just not. And so, you know, we knew that that regardless of the ups and downs of the economy, we still needed to be able to prove this in other markets. And, 
LA is our is our largest market right now. And yes, it, right. It, it's continuing to grow quite a bit, and so so that was another major milestone. And I think the next big one for us was really around capital and the capital markets, right? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we sort of syndicated out our first few deals to what I call family and friends, like you know, friendlies, people yeah. who were like, okay. This, just don't lose my money, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but we knew that if we wanted to scale, we had to get away from sort of the VC world because this really was a real estate company at the end of the day and really prove out the model to your institutional you know, capital markets providers. Did you also have challenges there in terms of, you know, returning the kind of, uh, you know, returns that they're used to from their venture capital investments? Well, so... So your 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 VCs who have have been investors in our in our company from day one and have continued to reinvest with us, they are always looking at the long term. Will this be the Avalon Bay or Equity Residential of the future? That's really their perspective. Yeah, it's like, yeah. let's look at this on a ten to fifteen year horizon. And you know, lo- venture can get a bad rap sometimes in that it's viewed as short termism. But the reality is, is they actually at least the ones that we've selected and who've joined our board have really given us the leeway to test a lot of things, make a lot of mistakes yeah. and learn from those mistakes along the way. When it came time for us to really scale up the capital to contribute to our actual real estate developments, the most important thing to do was to convey a track record that meet it, met or exceeded traditional multifamily. And so if you looked at our historic developments, we had performed above a traditional multifamily Upon, on every metric, right on ocu- on occupancy rates, on internal rate of return, on return on cost, and the spread between return on cost and cap rate, and so that was really what allowed us to start to onboard institutional capital partners. And so, you know, if you sort of draw the line between when we first started to where we are today, the market has really evolved. And what that and what that took was all the constituents in the real estate business. You know your your brokers, your appraisers, your lenders, your LPs, your analysts to really understand what co living was, and then start to really get the value. You know, understand the 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 um, the value proposition. Right, right. Right. And that and that took and that took time. Yeah. But I would say like that was the next major milestone. And then I guess the final one, which is actually what I call, which is really the fun one right now, is we've really figured out the Goldilocks zone for the Star City brand and product from a physical format standpoint. Okay. And what I mean by that is the smaller buildings that are sub 50 beds, you know, those are some of the legacy projects that we built Um, and they're certainly great communities and they perform well, but you can't deliver the level of service with labor and experience on site and all the cleaning staff and the community managers and all that all that stuff that you would like to do because you can't scale essentially right that's that's right and and also the P&L of those types of developments just don't support full-time staff yeah and so you can't deliver the level of service and quality that you would want and then the very very large developments a few of which we've entitled or gotten approvals for there just wasn't precedent for them and so the capital markets was largely saying, okay, let's just wait and see. Maybe another five, 10 years from now, these could be possible, but it was yeah. just a little bit outside of, of that, of, of the comfort zone. And so we've really landed on a sweet spot of project sizes between 100 and 300 beds that have real class A amenities, 
and a price point, as I mentioned, that again is affordable for the working class. And I'm, I'm super proud of a of a development that we're breaking ground on next year in San Francisco, on Minna and Fifth Street, right next to Brookfield's Five yeah. M project. And this is a 271 unit ground up development that will include some modular technology and is 50% affordable below market rate where folks, as I mentioned, on minimum wage can afford to live in a class A co-living development. And so for me, like this is a very exciting time because now we really have the template. The capital markets is starting to to really warm up to the asset class. There's way more demand than we can um, service right now, even despite the COVID times. And I'm happy to kind of get into that. But um, now it's really just about scaling opening up to new markets, you know, obviously we've, we've opened in Western Europe, in Barcelona and soon in Madrid. And so, you know, really it's starting to put dots on the map in, in both uh, in North America and Western Europe. Got it. So before I do jump over to the kind of, you know, 2020 discussion and kind of what, what, what COVID has done to, to your industry during the time that you were building up star city, essentially over the last, you know, five years or so, Others have been building similar products in other markets, right? So this is not a sort of fringe kind of niche product anymore, I would argue, because it's it's in pretty much every urban environment at this point, right? Tell us how that industry has evolved over the last, you know, half decade, essentially. Yeah, and, and I, I I would say that we're in, um, there's a handful of, of folks who are doing co-living in, and everybody has their own approach. And I think we're, excited that the there's a, a a healthy amount of i wouldn't even call it competition i would say a, a healthy peer group right yeah. some folks are taking the operator only approach where they just manage assets for developers yep others are developing units that are larger in scale and then they do a short term rental component as well others are like local merchant builders who are then selling to major co-living owners and operators um, so there's a bunch um, that I, you know, that I really admire across both the country and 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 Europe, and, and as well as in Asia. And so I think the the market has matured to the point where there's, I would say, you know, it's half a dozen of us that are you know industry leaders. But then there's also, you know, local upstarts that are creating their own, you know, smaller communities. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's and that's really. I think the the cool thing to see is that uh, there is a, a, a lot of supply being created, and, and I think at the end of the day, if we're really mission driven, we should want the all rising tide lift up, lifts all boats, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that that the the market economics, you know, the, the market fundamentals, having comps in the market, you know, getting lenders to understand what other buildings are trading at, all that kind of stuff, it's all good, right? It's all good for us, and you know, because the demand side of the equation is so large, we rarely run into a situation where a, a member, which is what we call our residents, yeah. will say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you versus two other co-living locations. Like, uh, how do you compare, right? You know, it's very rare that that happens right now because, um, again, the market is still maturing to the point where it's there's a, there's a lot of different options. Mostly what we compete with is on one end, the very expensive studio apartments in the high end, you know, luxury apartments. Okay. And or the mom and pop landlords 
who maybe don't deliver on the same level of service and quality that we do. Yeah. And so th- th- that's really where we are price price to 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 compete with. Interesting. Interesting. So John, uh, 2020 came and uh, brought with it this terrible virus that's affected pretty much everybody's life and you know across the globe. Tell us, you know, what impact did this have on, you know, Star City and on this in- industry in general? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I'm sitting at this desk here, and I, I feel like we've all gone through quite a lot, but haven't really moved, you know, very <laughs> yeah. much uh, physically. Are you are you, are you carving is, in like every 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 day that passes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like being stuck on a boat <laughs> right. or something. Look, I mean, you could say COVID, but there's been a ton of other things as well, right? The George Floyd tragedy. Sure. There's been the presidential election. There's also been the fires. You know, there's been so much, and you know that that level of anxiety has really weighed weighed on people, and it's been a tricky time. I think yeah. what we've also learned is that we can have all these digital tools, but at the end of the day, we really do enjoy spending time with one another and socializing and gathering. There's that, you know, that anxiety is not quelled as much as it used to be because you could go out and have you know a glass of wine with a friend or whatever that might be, and that we just don't have that same opportunity that we yeah. used to. So. Look, I mean, Q2, when COVID hit landfall in March, April, May, and beyond, and it's really started to unsettle the economy and, and the way that we lived and worked and everything, it, it, it affected us just like any other, any other business. And our occupancy suffered in the first, you know, in the second quarter, you know, I think we went down across the portfolio to the 80s. Um, on an occupancy level, yep. and and that was mostly because folks lost their jobs or wanted to move close to family, or you know, we're like, hey, I, I just don't know if I want to live in in this close proximity with other people. Yeah, yeah. When we don't know what the virus is actually, what it what the actual effects of it are, you know. But 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 after Q two, there was a few things that really allowed us to recover, and we're now back at a place where our portfolio in most cities on an occupancy basis is at pre-COVID level. So back in the mid nineties on occupancy and our collections have always stayed above the sort of 98% range. Oh, interesting. I would say, yeah, one thing about our, about our demographic is it's very good credit, you know, resilient, you know, a lot of folks had jobs in a bunch of different industry types. And so there was, you know, good, good amount of, of, of folks who still kept their income. So that was good news. But you know the, the three main reasons why we were able to make what I would call a comeback and show that the asset class was resilient was we put in place a, a pretty hefty operations plan. Everything from virtual tours to virtual events to Navy SEALs Team 6 protocol. If uh, okay. somebody actually got the virus, we right. would quarantine them or, or put them up in an Airbnb and we had a guest lists and we wouldn't allow you if you if you violated the guest policy we would fine you and everybody really bought into that and that really stabilized occupancy first and foremost after that was implemented there was two stories that came out in pretty major news publications that were firsthand accounts of you know folks who were living in star city locations during covid and 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 obviously the george floyd um, crisis and 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 everything related to the fires and all, and all the things that happened, and what they conveyed was the world is falling apart. But at least I have some roommates to commiserate with, and you know, have happy hour with, or you know, you know, um, work on my sourdough bread recipe or whatever right, that might right. be. 
And so that, that we got lucky there, I would say. And, you know, the third thing was it became clear that the virus was largely having negative effects on senior citizens and uh, folks with pre-existing health conditions. Right. And our sure. demographics, you know, typically 20 to 50 years old is the sweet spot for us. And the average age is in the mid thirties. And so people felt comfortable that there was not a a potential for a very negative health outcome if if worst case scenario they did get covid in a co-living situation and so from sort of q2 i would say summer and beyond occupancy has started to come back now i will say that like we've certainly revised pricing increased incentives and had to very you know handhold all of our residents sure. and, and we're, you know we're very hands on as far as like interaction and communications with our residents, as you can imagine. And, you know, with a heightened state of anxiety, our, our conflict resolution team, uh, as we call the member operations is <laughs> working overtime. Interesting. You're right. Every member has my, right. my phone number and email so they can contact me at any hour, night or day or weekend. And they, they tend to do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but I'm happy to, to, you know, to pick up those calls and yeah. just talk to people about the, you know, how things are, are going. You know, so I would I would say I, I sit here, Vlad. You know, towards the end of the year, and we feel really good about the direction of where co living is and how it's performed during the during the downturn. I would not have been able to answer that so confidently in Q two, and I, I would have said, you know, it, it's anyone's guess, yeah, uh, what yeah. direction this could go. But you know, and, and the theme that I mentioned to you earlier about community i mean that's we are humans are social creatures and living in a studio apartment and watching you know netflix on repeat by yourself and watching you know being on zoom calls day in and day out like that can becoming that can become depressing and yeah it's not research it's not an encouraging thing to do on a daily basis that's for sure (laughs) that's right you know the other thing that that we also get questions about is like what's the what's the future of cities look like with so many companies announcing remote work and and all that sort of stuff the big question that we get is do you still are you still long urban are you still long cities and you know I, i'm i would do want to make the caveat that i'm deeply biased here <laughs> yeah but i look at the 500 year trend and i say 500 year trend and i don't say that jokingly but the the urban form has been the choice destination for humans for the last couple centuries, despite, you know, world wars, major pandemics, the increasing rate of urbanization has only gotten greater over time. And you can also overlay that with every technological innovation that's occurred during those times when every major publication of any size has said, the advent of the telephone will mean we can live anywhere we want to and never have you know what I mean? Yeah, Not yeah. have to live in these urban cities or the advent of the automobile or the advent of the fax or the mobile phone or the computer or internet or driverless cars or you name it, right? Like at every major innovation inflection point, there has been folks who have foretold the end of cities. And despite that, people, you know, you fly over Manhattan and there's green everywhere, but everybody's decided to live on this tiny rock. <laughs> yeah. And so- like I don't want to be the Thanksgiving turkey that lives a beautiful life for 364 days out of the year and gets its head cut off on the on the last day right before, you know, the Thanksgiving uh, feast. Uh, but what I would say is that 
if the f- the past is any indication of the future, humans will still want to enjoy all the benefits of culture, nightlife, arts, entertainment, and it's just not the same over a screen. It yeah, just really isn't. I, I and, think so. I think so. And I think you know, at some point, we will solve this you know crisis one way or another. We may have to change the way we behave and talk and interact with one another. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the appeal of an urban environment or an environment where there is activity, rather, maybe that's another way to look at it, right, is that, that ur- urbanism may be less defined by, you know, high density, but more where the activity is, right? And and that urbanism could take, you know, different shapes as well, right, um, which I think, you know, might might be an interesting evolution of that. But that's, that's for another yeah, well podcast. Said. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. Uh, so then tell us about Ollie. So how did this acquisition with Ollie or, uh, you know, merger with Ollie come, come about? Kind of give us a sense of, you know, how the, you know, genesis of that came and then where, where did it land? Yeah. So we, as I mentioned, you could count, I would say on one hand, the folks that are crazy enough to build a company and co-living at scale <laughs> over the last five to 10 years. Um, and Ollie was one of those ones that we really admired. Yeah, I'd known the founders through the, I guess I would say speaker circuit across you know both multifamily and co-living conferences and okay. just really had thought that they had built a, a quality brand they had also done a fantastic job in getting institutional capital uh, partners and developers to agree that it's a uh, risk worth taking to build co-living at scale yeah they also you know had had high re- remarks from their residents their members and uh, at the end of last year, there was a leadership change, and um, you know, obviously, as COVID occurred, we had a chance during this summer to really um, have a deeper discussion with their executive team and board. And it really made sense for us to look at an acquisition because there's a lot of things that fit in that where they really fit into to what we were doing that were, I guess, I would say, accretive and 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 not competitive. Yeah. Right? So we were. We were we were West Coast and and West Europe, but we were missing East Coast. They had okay. East Coast presence. So a nice complement to the overall portfolio, essentially. That's right. And then secondarily, they had built technology tools in their uh, stack that we that were on our roadmap. So we built a front end marketing engine, a property management system, a mobile app. Um, they had built. A roommate matching platform, okay. A a provisioning system, which is basically like uh, uh, getting room service in in an apartment, which is really cool. Yeah. And then also, not as sexy, but deep integrations with legacy property management systems like Yardi and RealPage and all that kind of stuff. And 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 as I mentioned, not sexy, but very hard. Yeah. And something that we we again we was on our roadmap to do. And so, if you take all of that, and then also add in the fact that they have a stellar team. Nearly everyone is coming over and, you know, like very solid investor base. You know, it felt like it was the right time to, to, do, to do that. And, you know, we, we feel honored to be able to, you know, take on uh, the Ollie locations and, ca- and call them Star City. You know, we're going to be spending the next weeks and months doing the transition. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, M&A can go one of, one of two ways, right? And I think it always comes down to the amount of thought and care you put into it. But secondarily, you know, if there's, if there's deep alignment on strategy, we both feel the same about the type of buildings we'd like to build, how you treat your residents, uh, that this should also have a very 
modern consumer technology layer to it as well. Yeah. Um, all of, all of those things were very lined up and, 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 and so far it's, it's gone really well and we're, we're thrilled at that opportunity. And, 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 and so, you know, as we look forward into the future, it's really just, as I mentioned about uh, scaling over the next five years into all the, the cities and geos where there's still massive income inequality. There's still a, uh, frustrated working class who doesn't have the same opportunities as as the sort of top ten yeah. percent uh, money yeah. makers do. Um, there's still a desire to move back to the urban form, um, and 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 finally, you know, giving that 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 demographic that customer hope that they could click a button and move to any major city that they want to and have the same high quality experience at every Star City location. Yeah. No. Interesting. So, John, given with everything that's going on this year, uh, and you've outlined all of, not all, but a, a, a big chunk of the really big issues that we've all had to deal with uh, in, you know, 2020, as you look into, you know, the next year and even into the next decade, what gives you hope? My children. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I say that facetiously, but, uh, you know, they they are one of the main motivations why I do this and and then I think about the folks who aren't as lucky as you or I and are struggling right now. And, yeah. you know, we still have massive unemployment. We still have, you know, race, gender inequality, you know, all of that is, is, is unsolved um, in many cases. And so, you know, I think what, what I, what I'm really hopeful for is still delivering on our mission, right? Like if, if we can create, a template like our project at Minna and Fifth, where we can deliver high quality, affordable housing in the heart of cities at scale. And our, that is not beholden to federal subsidies in any way, shape or form. If we can do that time and time again, and just repeat it over and over and over again, that I believe will give those folks who are, are struggling the hope that they can unlock all the opportunities that great cities really hold and 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 you know the research is is very clear just being in places where the opportunity is in, increases the likelihood that you will make it into the next income class by 10 times and that's crazy if you think about it right yeah. so if you're if you're in a rural area where there's a there's a stagnant economy if all you do is just pick up your bags and move to a boom town the chance that you'll make it up into the next income bracket even if you keep the same job Right, if you're a barista or whatever, a bartender, whatever that might be, the likelihood that you'll increase your income to the next income bracket is ten times, and that's I think that's really interesting, um, and that's that's the the mission that really gives me hope. And you know, again, as I mentioned, we're very fortunate. We're we've been lucky during this time, and I feel I feel totally blessed. And I, I, thanks again for having me on on the pod. I'm an avid listener. Uh, thank you. No, John, <laughs> thank great. you. It's been very interesting listening to your story. I knew bits and pieces of it, but I, I didn't know the story with your with your family. And it as you were telling me that and kind of, you know, connecting the dots between sort of the way that your parents and how you were raised and, you know, the environment that they created and where you are now, you know, you can see the path and it kind of reminded me of the of the you know mythology of a hero, and I and I'm not saying this to you know kiss up or anything, John, but you know the mythology of the hero 
is that a hero is somebody who goes on an adventure. And I think in your case, the adventure was, you know, the capitalist adventure, right? Going and finding yourself in, uh, you know, Cushman and Wakefield and sort of working in that industry and then returning sort of through a, you know, decisive crisis and winning a victory. And I think you can equate that as sort of you, you know, finding this sort of calling of, uh, you know, really transforming the way, the way housing behaves. Right. And then, and then through that victory coming home and changing and transforming, you know, your, your home, your world, if you will. And so you've, you've done that. And I think you should be very, very, you know, proud of that, especially in a very short amount of time. I mean, five years is nothing. I know in, in sort of startup world, it, 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 it seems like a, like a huge amount of time. But if you're now talking five years later, 3,000 plus units, um, that is an amazing uh, accomplishment. So uh, thank you for your time. And, you know, thanks for, you know, giving us an insight into your, into your daily world. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. And, and look, the real hero is, is, um, is the team, my team, you know, sort of everybody that came before me, I do have to give a shout out to my wife for hand, for handling me. <laughs> very <laughs> very good, during, very good one, John. Time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, for sure. And <laughs> all of my all of my former comrades in, in brokerage, yeah. you know, I think that I learned a lot from my of mentors. Course. Of course, and um, you know, I think a lot, and and the, you know, obviously, um, really appreciate the kind words, and um, you know, this was fun, man. Really enjoyed. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll stay safe, and uh, you know, we'll have you back in a few years when you're up to ten thousand units, and see how the world looks then. So, <laughs> I appreciate right. it. All right, have a good Take one, care. John. 